This morning in our lesson, we talked about uh, revenge and retaliation. We talked about the desire that is so common within humanity to, when you receive evil, respond to it uh, by inflicting evil on the person who did it. And that might even happen with some good motives, like perhaps if they suffer because they inflicted suffering, maybe they'll learn not to inflict suffering anymore. And as a matter of fact, that's, a, that's an idea that is uh, throughout our world. That's an idea that is in our legal system. And, and in the Bible, there is this, uh, in the Old Testament, you see this idea of trying to um, put some some protections in place to make sure that the vengeance or the revenge that uh, you seek is proportional to the crime that was committed. So if someone, uh, say, here's an example, uh, if you remember in the book of Genesis when Dinah, the sister of, uh, of the sons of Israel, uh, when she was violated by Shechem, uh, the response of Levi and, um, and, uh, and his brother was to go in there and not just to respond uh, in a proportional manner, but they ended up just killing like an entire village of people. Uh, and at the end of the book of Genesis, as the blessings are being uh, delivered to the sons, they were remembered because of their disproportional vengeance and cruelty and bloodshed. The idea is that was not eye for eye. That was an eye for 10,000 eyes. You know, that, that was something where something bad happened, and then the response was massive bloodshed. Well, that happens in our world even today. You know, might not, that might happen on more... Um, more uh, communal or, or nationalistic uh, fields, but even in our own individual lives, we have a tendency to, when we suffer a harm, want to inflict it back and to even increase it. And what Lex Talionis, which we talked about this morning, the idea of an eye for an eye, that says no. When a wrong is inflicted, you can only inflict an equal amount of wrong back. If someone harms your eye, you can harm only their eye. Well, what Jesus says, and this is the radical nature of his kingdom, is that I'm calling on my disciples to not even do that. I want you to be, I think of it uh, in my head, this might be a bad illustration, but like a vacuum cleaner for the evil of the world. How much good would a vacuum cleaner do if as soon as it sucked up the dirt, it just shot it out the back right back onto the floor? It's like you could go all day long and you're just, every time you're just moving dirt around, you're not cleaning anything up. Uh, what Jesus wants us to do is when evil is inflicted upon us, don't then turn around and give it back to anyone else. Let it die with you. That's the only way evil will die. In order for evil to survive, once it's given to somebody, that person has to take it and infuse new life in it and give it back to that person or someone else who will then take it and give it more life and give it to someone else. And evil ends up growing exponentially rather than being eliminated. And Jesus is saying the way to eliminate evil in this world is not to receive it and then deliver it back to someone else, but it's to let it die with you. And that's what the picture of the cross is when Jesus takes on the sins of humanity and he dies on the cross bringing death to that sin. That's the very picture of our salvation. And we are called, as people who are supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ, as people who carry our cross to follow after him, to live that way ourselves. And it's very difficult to do, and it is highly unintuitive. It goes against a lot of what our sensibilities and our, our pictures of heroism are, but it's what Jesus did, 
And it's that that he calls us to follow in as well. Um, Even earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us these types of ideas in the Beatitudes when he says things like, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Why? Because God is a peacemaker. And so when you act like, when you, when you uh, make peace uh, the primary goal of your interactions with others, you are imitating your father. And finally, the, the final beatitude where he says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Like, who does the kingdom of heaven belong to? The people who are persecuted. And how do they respond to that persecution? Do they then lash out at their persecutors? No, he says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus wants you to remember a few things about this idea of when you suffer evil, letting it die with you instead of inflicting it. Remember that God is the ultimate perfect judge. And so it's an act of trust in God to allow him to take your vengeance instead of trying to repay it yourself. But also remember that there is a resurrection and the wrongs that you suffer in this life will be made right in that glorious day. And so the the ability to live in this way, it's rooted in a couple of things, but a lot of them are an immense amount of trust in God that he will act as our judge and that he will right the wrongs that we suffer. And so there's no need for me as an imperfect judge to try to inflict my own suffering on others. I probably won't do it very well. But I can allow God to handle it, and I can trust in God to make things right. And as the Sermon on the Mount continues, and we'll talk about this next week, if we can actually develop the ability not only to love our neighbor and hate our enemy, but to love our enemies as well, then the way we respond to them isn't rooted in the self-interest of trying to make myself feel better or, or vent the frustration that they've given it to me and put it back on them, but rather it's rooted in love so that even when the person slaps me on the face, I still want to seek their well-being. Jesus, while dying on the cross, was saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Like Even while suffering, he sought their well-being. That's, that's the call of being a Christian. And I think it is one of the most difficult ones that we'll face. But it's one that, that Paul continually comes back to. It's one where, where Paul will, you know, it is amazing to me the transformation that takes place in Paul. Think about his idea of how to respond to uh, heretics in his life. Prior to meeting Christ, how did he respond to heretics? persecution, prison, and death, right? Like when people, when he thought people were wrong and were harming uh, the truth of God, he wanted to respond to them with violence and death. He was a persecutor. After coming to know Christ, he's the one who says things like, bless those who persecute you, just like Jesus says. Uh, Pray for those who persecute you. He's the one who says, never repay anyone evil for evil, but respect what is right in the sight of all men. Like, Paul is the one who will be stoned in one city, and rather than responding with hatred, he'll move on and keep preaching the gospel, considering it a blessing that he was able to suffer for the name of Christ. Paul is the one who will be persecuted yet seeing in prison, and he does not seek vengeance anymore. 
He does not retaliate with violence anymore. Like, Paul has had a complete transformation in his view of what religious zeal looks like. Zeal was the religious tradition in Judaism that said, basically, I am willing to take life and even give my own life for the sake of the truth of God. And you can see it's a pretty rich tradition. Even there was a group that ended up becoming called zealots. Uh, But when you look at things like with Paul, when he talks about the zeal that he had, Read his description of himself in in Philippians. He'll say, with respect to the law, blameless. With respect to zeal, a persecutor of the church. I mean, that zeal was an idea that led to actual physical persecution. And yet, after becoming a Christian, that's the type of thing that he gives up. Not because he doesn't have enemies anymore. Oh, he certainly had enemies. And not because uh, he didn't disagree with people anymore. He disagreed with people. And now he's actually facing disagreement with people who want to harm and kill him. That wasn't what he was facing before. Before, he was the one who was wanting to harm and kill. Now he has people who actually want to put his life on the line, and he will not respond in kind. Why? It's because Jesus utterly transformed him. And that's the transformation that I think we are seeking um, as well. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this idea and uh, kind of see some of how it develops in the Bible. Um, if you remember Jesus' teaching on divorce, we talked about it Uh, about a month or so ago, Um, one of the things that you'll notice that Jesus says about divorce is he contrasts the view and the practice that was common in his day with what God originally desired for mankind in Eden. And even when he was interpreting Deuteronomy 24, which talks about a certificate of divorce, he says, Moses allowed or permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning, it was not so. There was an ideal at the beginning that humanity failed to live up to. And so God condescended uh, and accommodated his teaching to where humanity was with the hopes that he can raise them up out of that. It's my belief that I think a similar thing has happened with respect to uh, revenge or retaliation or even violence. Uh, I think that there is an ideal that you can see in Eden and in the early chapters of Genesis that because of the hardness of men's hearts, ends up being altered. And I think Jesus is trying to call his people back to that ideal. So, um, what was the law regarding revenge in the Garden of Eden? Well, you didn't really have one, right? Uh, There was no need to, like, repay evil for evil because there was no evil. Uh, And so, in the earliest chapters, you don't have, like, well, what do you do if if Adam murders Eve? You know, like, that's not an issue that's in anyone's mind, uh, how to repay that type of thing. That's, they were too innocent to respond and react to each other in that way. However, there's something really interesting that happens. If you want to turn your Bibles way back to Genesis chapter 4, after they were banished from the garden— Something fascinating happens. Um, One of the first sins that you see outside of the garden was the sin of murder. Uh, It was where a brother killed his own brother. Cain killed Abel, and we've heard that story before, and uh, we know some of the details of it, which we won't get into too much. But what I think is truly fascinating about that story is the role that vengeance and what we've called lex talionis, eye for an eye, plays in the telling of that story, the first murder. Because you remember, Cain kills Abel, and uh, God challenges him on that. Uh, After he does that, if you look at Genesis chapter 4 and verse 9, it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? This is after Cain has killed him. And Cain says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? 
what a terrible response uh, you know that, that is the idea of like first off it's it's dishonest and it's it's you're not going to fool God. You know, it's like, what are you asking me for? I'm not in charge of him. It's like, okay, well, you kind of took responsibility for him just a minute ago. Uh, but anyway, in verse 10, God responds, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And then he gives Cain's punishment. He says, now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. So there are a number of things associated with Cain's penalty here. Cain's punishment, because the blood of Abel soaked into the ground, the ground is suffering and is cursed uh, because of that. So Cain is cursed from the ground. The ground which drank the blood of Abel is not going to work for Cain anymore. And so an important part of life is being able to grow and to cultivate uh, uh, your your produce. And Cain is is going to struggle with that for the rest of his life. By the way, it is similar uh, to the curse that Adam received uh, in Eden where the curse is the ground because of you. And it's going to yield thorns and thistles and by the sweat of your brow you'll work and all of these things. So So the ground is going to take role in the punishment of Cain. But then also banishment. Uh, Cain is going to suffer banishment. He's going to be a wanderer and a vagrant in the land. And Cain responds in verse 13 by saying, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground. And from your face I will be hidden. And I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the land. And whoever finds me will kill me. Now that's very interesting. Uh, Cain is concerned that if he's sent away, he might be found and killed. One thing this tells us, and, and we can... Uh, speculate as to how it happened, but there are other people around at this time. Uh, so it's not only Cain and, and his parents. Uh, there are other people, there are other places. He's going to find a wife. There are other societies that have developed. But God did not respond to Cain's murder by killing Cain. God did not practice an eye for an eye here. Cain killed Abel, and yet God doesn't kill him. Instead, God does punish him. Vengeance belongs to God, and this is God's form of vengeance. The ground is going to suffer, and it's going to not yield its strength to you, and you're going to be a wanderer. And so Cain is going to have to go. But what is Cain concerned about? Lex Talionis. He's concerned that I'm going to go out, and there's going to be people who find me and know I'm a murderer, and they kill me. There's going to be people who might uh, take justice into their own hands, perhaps, and kill me as I killed my brother. And so he is very concerned that he'll suffer the same fate that he just inflicted on someone else. Well, couldn't God say, deal with it? You know, you, you killed someone. You know, if that happens to you, then that happens to you. That's, that's, that seems like a response that we could justifiably understand. But I think we're at a point here, granted it's not Eden, but it's still pretty close to Eden. It's just this side of Eden. And I think what you're seeing is God is still the God of love, even for a murderer named Cain. God is merciful, even to Cain in this story. And so God's response in verse 15, so the Lord said to him, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a mark or a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. 
And we're not given great detail about that, but God gives him a mark of salvation, basically. A mark that says no one is allowed to harm you. No one is allowed to respond with vengeance against Cain. And what does God say about vengeance? He says that if anyone does harm you, vengeance is mine. Uh, it, it will be restored seven. So God is the one here in both instances. He's the one who's taking the role of the avenger. He's the one who's saying vengeance belongs to me. When Abel died, he's the one who responded to Cain. If someone harms Cain, God's going to be the one who responds to that. And so God does not respond eye for an eye, but rather he extends grace even to Cain. And he gives Cain while he still has punishment, a way of being saved from those who might want to take justice into their own hands and respond with violence or murder against Cain. So I think what you're getting here is an interesting picture of the grace of God after sin and violence has entered into the world. And it looks a lot more like the Sermon on the Mount to me than it does uh, an eye for an eye. And so after God promises Uh, that no one should harm Cain. He gives him a mark so that people know not to harm him. God says, I will avenge whoever harms you. God does not kill him after he kills Abel. We see God extending mercy and grace and forgiveness and protection even to a murderer named Cain. Then Cain goes and gets married and begins to have children. Well, what we see happen with that is, uh, look down at verse 19. We run into someone named Lamech. And Lamech is going to introduce a couple of pretty harsh things into this world. The first thing he does is uh, we see in verse 19, Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Adah and the name of another was Zilhah. So this is the first time you see polygamy introduced. No polygamy in the Garden of Eden. Uh, again, there are some, some things about the hardness of men's hearts that develop a little bit later that were not part of God's original design. Uh, polygamy is something that develops later. And the guy who develops it, you don't get the impression, is a super good fella. Uh, as you keep reading about him, you come to find out he's going to do a couple of things that uh, thwart and harm God's good world. And so, uh, he ends up having a son. Uh, you can look down at verse 23. After describing a little bit about uh, his, his children and, and what they did, it says, Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Well, that's not Lex Talionis either. That's the other side of it that humanity so often gets engaged in, where he says, oh, Cain has God as an avenger. I'll be my own avenger. If God will avenge him sevenfold, I'll avenge myself 77-fold. If you insult me, if you wound me, I will take your life. And so now all of a sudden we see the other side of the coin, and this is what I think is more descriptive of what humanity has become in so many instances, is when a, a wrong is inflicted, the response is disproportional in the max, and that just increases the amount of violence and hatred in the world. And so Lamech becomes one who not only brings polygamy, he's the one who begins to bring uh, vengeance not associated with God, his own manner of vengeance, and it is disproportional and it is extreme. And so what happens if you continue to read, you'll see uh, this goes back to Adam and then tells his story of his generations down through chapter 5. When you get to chapter 6, you come to find out that the whole world seems to have become a whole bunch of Lamechs. 
The whole world has become people who respond with violence, and then once violence is given, more people respond with violence. And Lamech was an initial part of bringing that type of cruelty and hatred and violence into the world so that now humanity is defined by it. When you look at uh, Genesis chapter 6 in verse 13, uh, in verse uh, 11, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And so God says to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence. And so when God looks at the earth now, Everything has become the way that Lamech is, who brought that type of violence and and hatred in the extreme form into the world. So you have Cain, who brought violence into the world, and God responds to that with a measured punishment, but still with grace and with protection, and, and I think you can call it salvation, in that he's saying, no one else can take your life, and I am still on your side, Cain. But then you get to Lamech, who says, I don't want God to avenge me. I don't want God's justice. I want my own. And my own is severe and harsh. And that seems to be what caught on in the world. And now they're responding and acting in violence, not uh, not with God, but in their own manner. And it becomes so descriptive of life on earth that everyone's engaged in it that God decides he's going to uh, cleanse the earth of all of that violence. He's going to go back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, like the very first verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and there was darkness over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. You get this picture of the heavens and the earth just covered in water, and it's darkness, and then God brings forth light, and then God brings forth land, or the the heavens, and then he brings forth land and all that. Well, what he's going to do here is he's going to hit rewind on the creation project. If there was so much violence brought into this world, I'm going to go back to that pre-violent state, and I'm going to start over with a new Adam named Noah. And so he chooses Noah because Noah is someone who's righteous. Noah is someone who does not engage in that type of behavior that has so defined the rest of humanity. And so he's going to start again with someone like him. And so that's the story of the flood and where that comes from. But notice, very interestingly, What happens after the flood? This is where we see Lex Talionis introduced into the story of humanity from God himself. Uh, When you get to Genesis chapter 9, the flood waters have uh, receded and uh, humanity and and animal life has starting to to fill the land and to repopulate again. And God uh, reissues his uh, original creation decree, which is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the same thing that he said to Adam. Uh, That's what in in Eve, that's the same thing thing he's saying to the new Adam, uh, to Noah now in this new situation. And he's saying, I want you to, to be fruitful, to multiply and to fill the earth. But he goes on to say something very interesting when you get to verse 6. This is not something that he said earlier. A couple of things have now changed in the the way uh, and in the manner of life uh, regarding animal life, but then also human life. Um, But when you get to verse 6, he says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. So what has happened here? Well, in, in Eden, there's no retaliation or revenge laws in place uh, because you don't need them. With Cain, 
God steps in to make sure that, that humanity does not kill Cain, even though he killed Abel. He steps in as the protector and puts a mark upon him and says that he doesn't want anyone to do that. But then Lamech comes along and humanity rejects that idea and he's going to get his vengeance and his revenge. And that becomes so problematic that uh, it ends up encompassing all of humanity and leading to the flood. And so now after the flood, God is again going to try to make a peaceful resolution for mankind, but it is different. Here, he's going to establish the idea of lex talionis, eye for eye, blood for blood. If one man is killed by someone, then the person who killed him's life can be taken. But like Jesus says regarding divorce in Matthew 19, from the beginning it was not so. Um, And I think that when Jesus gets back to the Sermon on the Mount, he is giving us the ideals for the kingdom of heaven itself. He's giving us the, uh, the, the creation, uh, the, the Eden ethic in the world around him. And that looks very different than the way people often live. It looks like not blood for blood or eye for eye or tooth for tooth, but it looks like Jesus giving his life and his all-consuming love for humanity on the cross. And he's calling on us to pick up our crosses and follow after him. Um, that is different than, than what we so often want to see in the world around us. But even in the Old Testament, even with the hardness of men's hearts and the fallenness of mankind, you still see these moments where that idea pours forth. There's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. is from 2 Kings chapter 6, where uh, Elisha and uh, his... his is a prophet of God. And the, Israel is constantly having these battles with the Arameans. And the Arameans would plot and scheme against Israel, all these different ways that they might attack them. But Elisha had the Spirit of God revealing to him what was spoken by the commander of the armies of the Arameans. And he would tell Israel. So they were constantly prepared. Like every time they plotted something, Israel was prepared for it. And the, the, the king of the Arameans gets so frustrated by that because he begins to think, someone is spilling my secrets. And so he calls all of his commanders and he says, all right, which one of you is a traitor? Which one of you is for us? And which one of you is for them? Because someone is telling them all the stuff we plan. So one of you isn't trustworthy. And they say, it's not us. They have a genuine prophet of God there who is preparing them for everything you say. There's no one spilling your secrets. It's him. And so instead of taking his army against Israel, he takes his army against Elisha. And he goes and he surrounds the city where Elisha is. And Elisha is, you know, sleeping in his house one day and his servant is there. And his servant gets up and walks outside and uh, he sees a an enemy army surrounding them. And he realizes, oh no, we're in big trouble now. And so he goes in and he tells Elisha, like, they're all around us. We're doomed. And Elisha very calmly prays that God would open the servant's eyes so that he could see what's truly going on around him. And he looks and behold, on the mountains surrounding the foreign army are the invisible armies of God. The chariots of fire. God's army is there. And they realize, though, there's more with us than there are with them. Like, to, to normal human eyes, it would look like it was two against an army. But when God opened his eyes fully to see the truth that is so often hidden from us, he began to see that God was active and involved in the whole thing. And so here's what God did. 
He struck that army blind to where none of them could see. And Elisha said, oh, you're looking for Elisha. I'll lead you to him. And he leads that army right into the capital of northern Israel. And he tells the king of Israel that the army that you've been at war with, that you hate, is right here in your midst and they are blind. What do you think we ought to do? And the king, this is 2 Kings uh, chapter 6, in verse 21. It says, Then the king of Israel, when he saw them, said to Elisha, My father, shall we kill them? Shall we kill them? It's almost like a giddy boy on Christmas morning. You know, he's, his army's right there. And he says, it, can, can we do it? And instead of saying, Yes, by all means, they're your enemies. Kill them. They've been killing your people. Put it into them. What Elisha says is, Would you kill a bunch of prisoners? No. Put some food before them. Put some water before them. And it goes on to say in verse 23, So he prepared a great feast for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master, and the marauding bands of Arameans did not come again into the land of Israel. What you see happen here is instead of responding with hatred and violence and warfare, they gave them a feast. And after that feast, after they ate, they went back. And at least for a time, there was peace. And I think what you're seeing in that is even in the heart of the Old Testament, where you have kings and battles and warriors and all this stuff, there's still this idea that shines forth that love and generosity towards your enemies is still the best way. And that's because it's rooted in who God was. I mean, when you read through the New Testament, the the story of our salvation— is that God loved his enemies because we were at enmity with God. Uh, We were sinners and alienated from God, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. We were people who were very enemies of God. And yet while we were enemies of God, he demonstrated his love for us in sending his son to die for us. He saw his enemies and he gave up everything for them so that they could be saved. Um, we have a hope of salvation because we serve a God who loves his enemies and sent his son to die for them. And so because of that, we can be saved. When you read Romans chapter uh, 5, it's a beautiful depiction of God loving sinners and enemies enough to give up his own son for them so that we might be transformed from enemies into friends, into sons, into children. And not everyone will be. We said this morning— It's very possible someone will hate you, will persecute you, will be cruel to you, and you'll respond with the love and the kindness of God, and they will only use that against you. There are cruel people in this world, and that may happen. Um, It's also possible that your kindness can show them a better way, and they can see something in the love of God that they had never seen before because of you. You don't know what's going to happen. But the call is not necessarily to change the world. I don't know that we can do that. Maybe God can do that. I mean, God can do that. But I don't know that I can change the world. But I do know that I can obey God. And I can glorify him with my actions. And when you do so, that's how you become a city that's set on a hill, a light to the world and the salt of the earth. If, if everyone in the world is doing that, then it's... You're not a light in darkness. You're just a light in light. And that would be great. Uh, But that day hasn't come yet. 
the day right now is that we're a light in darkness and we're a city set on a hill. Um, if, if every other city is doing the same thing, then all the cities are on the hill. But the point is there will be a contrast. And this is one of the ways that we can demonstrate it. And the way we respond to cruelty and to violence and to hatred, overcoming them, not with more cruelty and greater violence, but overcoming evil with good. Um, that is central to the ethic of Jesus and of the kingdom of heaven, and it's one that I hope that we can take seriously as, uh, as followers and adherents of his. If there's anyone here who wants to take hold of the love of God that's offered to you, he's not go. No matter what you've done, you have a God that loves you. Think of Cain. <laughs> God even loved him. Uh, and his offer of salvation to be one of his own children is on the table for you right now. If you uh, so desire, you could take advantage of that and have eternal life with God as your loving father right here today. And we pray that you would let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.